courage and energy are two things that I'm really, really playing with. Like you're doing stuff to create value and then you're getting energy back. Amazing. If you could do that every day, the rest of your life, how happy would you be? If I can build an emotional relationship with my version of the future and an energetic relationship with my version of the future, and then I can just exercise a little bit of courage to take some steps towards it. Stuff's going to start happening. Like water's going to start flowing downhill. But you do have to have that courage so that you can say yes to something that will give you energy, that you are good at, that you are uniquely positioned to add value in. And again, you're sending courage to anyone who's thinking about a decision like that. Hey, what's up? I'm Andrew Kaplan. Welcome to the Delivering Value Show, where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams, not about their favorite tactics or strategies or playbooks. There's enough of that out there from other folks and other shows. This show is about the career challenges, professional adversity, and self-doubt that come when you work in these growth roles at early stage companies. It's a hard job. This show normalizes that everyone makes mistakes and everyone encounters adversity. My guest today is Dave Boyce. Dave is a serial entrepreneur turned professor and writer. He's on the board at Forrester and Winning by Design. He's an advisor to a handful of different startups. And right now he's writing a book called Product That Sells Itself, which is going to be available in 2024. Dave and I chatted about the two toughest pieces of feedback that he's ever received and how those still influence him today. We talked about the time when he was driving and got a call from Greg Zachary, who's one of the early investors in Twitter that began with, hey, Dave, this is going to be a tough call. Do you have a minute? And we talked about how he finds the courage today to overcome the imposter syndrome related to publishing his new book on PLG, even though he feels like he's not the expert on PLG. There's a ton of content in here that I think will be interesting and relatable and helpful to folks at all different levels of their career journey. Let's hop right in. So where I'd like to start is get kind of the TLDR of your story about how you first got into this product-led world. So how did I get into the product-led world? Bumps, bruises, battle scars. I've done sales-led and product-led and very, very short headline is product-led is better. But, you know, we all didn't always have product-led. So, you know, when I first started into software it was 1999 and we didn't have the cloud but it was the internet and i was really interested in b2b on the internet there were exchanges like chemdex and vertical net but there wasn't a lot of b2b software in in the cloud or on the internet but i knew it was coming so then we built a company called profit logic where we hosted everything and served up all the functionality kind of over the internet and sold that company to Oracle and it was amazing and our sales led engine was great our ASPs were over a million bucks when we sold the company and then I thought okay cool like let's go do the next one and the next one I did I actually had an office in Westford and where you're from we moved it to Silicon Valley because it was highly based on social like using social promotion it was a crowdfunding platform and for any of the listeners, Westford, not exactly the hotspot of tech talent or energy or anything cool or hip. Westford, Massachusetts, amazing. Except for, you know, this little company. No, we moved it to Palo Alto and I had ASPs that were the exact opposite of what we had at ProfitLogic and Oracle. Like they were less than $5,000. This was 2010. There's no way we could afford to pay for sale. So we just had to figure it out. And we didn't have the acronym PLG, but we... You know, we were talking about self-service. We were watching Basecamp and Dropbox and Zendesk. And we're like, we're going to have to figure out an acquisition model that looks more like that because that will probably, you know, get our unit economics to work. So with zero salespeople, we figured out how to get kind of SEO and SEM 
and acquisition working. We got our unit economics dialed. We got a business that was kind of self-sustaining. And I was like, man, it is so different. You know, I was saying it's so different in Silicon Valley than it was in Boston, kind of how I was shorthanding it. And then I, I made a bad choice and I went to a company that didn't believe that in its bones the same way I did. I moved to Utah, joined InsideSales.com. Inside Sales had a high velocity engine, but it wasn't fully self-service. And instead of trending towards self-service, it was trending towards enterprise. And we went up into the enterprise, a game that I totally, totally know. And we totally crushed it until we didn't. <laughs> and then it was like, everything was upside down. All the metrics were upside down. All the unit economics were upside down. And I'm like, man, why did I not listen to my gut? And so after that, I was like, I'm never going back. I mean, I know I, I love hybrid models. I love all of it, but I think it all starts with unit economics and unit economics always benefits from product led. And that is where I've been living ever since. And so it sounds like it came fairly naturally. Once you learned a little bit more about the model and, and you got your feet wet, sounds like you just couldn't not be interested in PLG. That's accurate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so along the way, I'm curious to know if there's been a significant moment or person that has impacted your career journey? This is going to sound like a flex. It's not meant to be because I had known this guy forever and we knew each other because we lived in the same neighborhood and we went to the same church. So this had nothing to do with professional anything. But the guy that always, always, always comes back to me and his little pieces of advice and also stuff that he's written and published is Clay Christensen. And his models are so prescient and so good. And he's such a good thinker. And, you know, we've lost him now. And it's a big loss for the world. But Clay Christensen's amazing. You know, everyone knows him for the innovator's dilemma. We're starting to know him for jobs to be done theory, jobs theory. He was less famous for that along the way. But he's got a ton of just really, really incisive thinking. And then when I sat down with him, he always had good advice for me. And he always called it like it was. Like when I was struggling with this startup out of Palo Alto, he's like, Dave, when you've got the job to be done right, it will feel like water flowing downhill. And that is not what I'm reading for your body language right now. What I'm reading for your body language is you feel like you're pushing a rock uphill. And I'm like, you're right. And so then that started a conversation and he was an advisor to the company and an investor. So, you know, he could have just been a straight up cheerleader, which he, he was, but also he was going to help me like speak to truth. And he did that over and over with me and I love him for it. Awesome. I was just going to ask, what's one thing that you learned from him? But it sounds like what you learned, at least in the story that you shared, is that it should be easy when you found the right fit. Yeah, it should be easy. Here's the problem. Like a lot of the people that I talk to, and Utah is known for this. Like I live in Utah now. So like we moved from Boston to Silicon Valley to Utah. So now I'm following like we sold a company to Oracle that did that out of Boston, then moved to Silicon Valley, did a PLG company we talked about, Fundly. They moved to Utah. Utah's known for salespeople. They're just like manufactured here because men and women go on Mormon missions. They get really, really good at overcoming their inhibitions, being able to talk to people, being able to handle objections. So a lot of the big companies coming out of Utah have all been sales-driven, Qualtrics and Omniture and Alteryx and Domo and Pluralsight, like all these companies that you know made it to unicorn status. Inside Sales was one of those. But there's a dark side to being good at sales. If you're compelling and engaging and you have personality and you can do sales, 
It doesn't mean you should do sales. It doesn't mean you should fight through the headwinds and just get to the other side of the sale. Because if it feels like that, it may not actually be a good fit. If it is a good fit, it's probably doesn't feel like that. It probably feels like water flowing downhill. And so that's one of the lessons I had to learn the hard way. Just because you're good at sales doesn't mean that you should push through. Clay taught me that. And as you've continued on, I'm curious to know, what's like one career accomplishment that you're personally proud of as you reflect back a little bit here? The thing I'm proudest about is um, the people in my life with whom I built relationships through our professional connections. I just got a note today from when I worked with over 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's like a thank you note. And she was an office manager, um, EA, amazing. And she's always lived into her own personal strengths. And I've always thought she was amazing for that. I mean, that just happened today. I just love the opportunities I've had to hire people, to work with people, to help them live into the best version of themselves, to celebrate them. We talked a little bit before we hit record about courage. I think courage is in really short supply. And so when I run into someone with courage and then I'm able to encourage that (laughs) and then they're able to go take some risks, I'm so proud of that. You could have answered that question in a million different ways, right? It's a pretty open-ended question. And a lot of times when I ask that, I'll hear milestone accomplishments from folks. Oh, when when I did this project or when we were able to go from X to Y, I'm curious why you didn't give an answer like that and why you talked a little bit more about I'm going to use the words coaching tree a little bit. Like I think about the sports analogy and this is a little bit of your personal coaching tree. I'm curious what motivates you to give that answer versus saying some business milestone. It's just the truth. Again, I'm 55 years old. I've had a few different wins along the way. No individual win is better than a human living her best life. Like if you just line it all up and you say like, you know, what feels the best? It's not dollars, it's not KPIs, it's humans. It just is. And, and it might be easier with perspective. Yeah, I love that. Not everybody has that, right? That comes from deep down. It comes from deep down. And to be fair, with experience too. With perspective, yeah. And so you've gone on to do some very cool things. Gotten to live in a few different places. You've gotten to scale some different businesses, see different business types. I know it hasn't been easy. Can you share a moment where you got a little bit of tough feedback along the way? Yeah, there are a few, but feedback's a gift and we rarely get it. It's really a shame that people take the edge off or they're not courageous enough to give feedback. It's something I want to be good at. And one of the times I learned that was early, early in my career. I was probably 28, 27. We lived in South Africa. I had moved my young family, one kid, uh, wife and one kid from Boston to South Africa to work on a one-year consulting project for the government of South Africa. I was working for a strategy consulting firm. At the end of kind of the calendar year, we would get a a review, like a performance review. So you're living in Boston. How old were your kids? As a parent to young kids, I'm like so fascinated by this. Yeah. One kid, 18 months. Wow. So you're really in it. Yeah. My wife, Lisa's adventuresome. I'm adventuresome. We joined this company, Monitor Company, because we knew that they had international offices and they were small enough that you could be mobile. And we knew that after one year, if you were performing well, you could put in to do an assignment, you know, somewhere, Europe, Latin America, Asia. I wasn't even thinking about Africa, but Africa came up and Greece came up. Wow. And so you've been at the company one year, you have a good review, and then that opens up all these other opportunities. Exactly that. Yeah. Cool. 
and I was really trying not to get put on another project before an international project came up. So I was like taking these short-term things and really, we wanted to go international. And then two projects came up at once. I said, Lisa, we have an opportunity to go to Greece or to South Africa. And she's like, well, I've been to Europe. I was like, that's why I married you. <laughs> like, no, it's dangerous, right? Like it was three years post-apartheid. There was all sorts of reasons not to go, 18-month-old kid. I'm like, don't you want to call someone? Like, you can't just say it and go. And she's like, yeah, I'll call someone. And short story, 24 hours later, I was on a plane. And two weeks later, she joined me. She had to pack up our apartment and whatever, join me. I mean, when you put yourself in harm's way, you got to be, you got to be ready for whatever comes. And I got a full frontal feedback at the end of the first calendar year. My manager gave me some tough feedback. And basically the net of that review was he rated me lower after having spent six months doing really hard work. I was working 80 hour weeks. Nobody works 80 hour weeks in Africa. Everybody works 35 hour weeks. So I'm doing kind of investment banker hours in a culture that, you know, is new to me in an industry that was new to me. And then I got rated lower after six months of that than I had been rated prior to departing. And I'm like, why didn't you say anything? I was counting on like a bump because I have this young family and we're trying to like, you know, make ends meet and, you know, we're paying off debts and this is going to mean I'm getting no bonus or a very minimal bonus. And I would have liked to have known that. I would have liked to have addressed it. So that was my initial reaction, pretty defensive. And I love this guy. His name is Matt, but it was tough. He gave me a gift, but it was tough. I never forgot the feedback. And Every project I did since then at that consulting firm, after that, I went to business school. After that, I was in software. But um, every consulting project I did since then, I used his feedback to make sure that I was going to succeed. And I would say every project I've ever done in software companies or anything, I was not managing up well. I was not managing laterally well. And I was not managing down well. I was an individual contributor who was the best at what I did. And I thought that that was going to win the day. 80 hours of heads down work. I'm very smart. I'm good at what I do. That'll win the day. It doesn't win the day when you're working in a team. So I had to set expectations. I had to set us up to succeed. I had to be able to structure the project, structure the milestones, see our way to success, illuminate the path to success for me and for anyone who is working with me and anyone who's working for me, and then communicate that up. I had not developed that skill set. As a result of Matt's feedback, I very quickly developed that skill set. And did he communicate that as directly and succinctly as you just shared it with me now, or did it come out in a more roundabout way? Probably more direct. He is a very direct guy. <laughs> it hurt. Lots of people do what you said. They'll just kind of take the edge off or, you know, roundabout or whatever. That's not who this guy is. He went right for it. And then he was almost surprised that I was surprised. And then he just wanted to be done with the meeting. <laughs> so I'm not sure he was the perfect feedback deliverer, but it was a gift. It was the truth. And so what goes through your head? And actually, before you answer that, did this happen live? Is this like the two of you sitting at a live. table? Yeah. So what goes no. through your head in that moment? He's sharing this feedback. You probably want to curl up into a ball. What goes through your mind? I forgot about this one. I had another one. That moment that you're describing right now, I had another one of those. In person, working for a mercenary CEO, he's going to eliminate my job. He basically tells me he's eliminating my job. And I believe I've been succeeding. I did better in that second one than I did in the first one. But what's going through my head is don't overreact, especially in the second one. I can't remember how I did with Matt. I think I got defensive. I think I did overreact. I think I probably sort of challenged him. But with Tom, I basically said, okay, tell me more. And like, is there something that I could do? And 
you know, I still believe in the company. What, you know, what do you have in mind? And under the water, you know, like the duck's feet are really churning above the surface of the water. My emotions were, I just really tried to manage my emotions because it wasn't going to help me to throw a fit or to challenge it or there's no way I'm going to change his mind. I mean, I literally thought in that moment, I had presence of mind in the Tom conversation and your mind's racing in these moments, right? So I, um, I think to myself, I bet Tom doesn't like delivering this news. I bet he spent a lot of time thinking about this. I bet he spent time yesterday thinking about it. I bet he geared up his courage this morning thinking about it. I'm sure he doesn't want me to try to talk him out of it because he's already steeled himself against that. And there's no way that I'm going to succeed in talking him out of it. So why don't I go almost this clay idea? Let me see what direction the water's flowing and see if there's anything that can work. This was a profit logic. And I was head of marketing and he was bringing in his own person to run marketing. And I just said, well, what could I do? And he's like, well, you're really good at business development in the sense that we now call corporate development, like partnerships and alliances. So we could do that, but your pay would come down by 40%. And we were in Boston, you know, it's expensive in Boston. This time I had three kids and a mortgage and 40% reduction in pay was not going to work. So I said, well, what would work? And he said this. And I said, do I have to live in Boston to do that? And he said, why? What are you thinking? And I said, well, what if we moved west? He's like, where would you move? I'm like, well, you know, all of our family lives west. We've been here in Boston for like eight years. And we always knew that at some point we'd go west. So just somewhere close to an airport, somewhere closer to family. He's like, let me think about it. He left the office. I call my wife just after eight. While she's on the phone, she's stripping wallpaper in our <laughs> living room because she knows we can't keep this house and she knows we can't sell it with the ugly wallpaper. And I'm just thinking, I don't know. Like, I don't want to write it off. I don't want to throw the toys out of the pram and quit. I want to be really rational, but I don't know what's going to happen. And I've asked him, is there a way to do something remote? And he said, let me think about it. And Lisa's like, okay, well, why do you want to stay? I'm like, because equity. Like, I believe in this company and we have a good chunk of equity. If there's a role I can do and we can stick it out and finish vesting, it's amazing for us. And I think I would like it. So Tom came back and agreed. I took 40% pay cut. We sold our house. We moved. I commuted to Boston from Utah for two years. And then we sold that company to Oracle. But when you ask what's going through your head, a million things, you just can't verbalize all of them because it's not going to be productive. So what, what was going through my head is, a million possibilities, but make sure that what you enter into the conversation is productive and is going to help him and me make progress rather than help then cause us to do this. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value, creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. 
Go to Novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. This episode is presented by AppQs. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at PostScript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppQs is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps, and they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appqs.com value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appqs.com slash value. I want to rewind a minute because you mentioned two tools that I think are really helpful for folks listening to this that probably you didn't even realize you mentioned them, but you did. One is that you talked about perspective, and the other is keeping presence in the moment. And both of those I think are hard to do. And I think are skills, like I don't think we're hardwired to be good at either of those. So let's maybe start with perspective. So you did this thing, which is actually something that coaches and maybe therapists would encourage folks to do, which is to put yourself in the other person's shoes and imagine what's going on in their life that led them to this moment, right? So you said, hey, I'm getting this feedback from Tom, I believe. Instead of fighting it, I pictured myself as him not being able to sleep the night before, prepping for this meeting, being nervous. He was probably nervous this morning. How did you learn to do that? Or where did that come from? I'm still learning it, Andrew. (laughs) I mean, this is one thing that comes out of sales kind of roles is you have to pay attention to the emotion and perspective on the other side of the table. Like you're going to reach some sort of agreement, consensus, only if both people are seeing things in a complimentary way. You know, you're never going to, this is never going to work. You got to, you got to get people aligned like this and shoulder to shoulder and looking at the problem. This happens internally with teams too. It's like, I think this, I think this, that's not going to work. Well, let's talk about that problem. Oh, and then we're both focused on the problem. So I probably learned that through just sales roles and externally facing roles. In that moment, I'm really lucky to have reached into my tool bag and found that because this guy was in a position of power. And so it's easy to fight the power. (laughs) Where I'm still learning it, I've actually gotten a lot better over recent years. But that empathy has been harder for me to deploy vis-a-vis someone who's working for me. That lesson has taken longer. It's easier for me to put myself in a, like say, well, this person who's in a position of power over me probably has their own perspective. I give them the benefit of the doubt. It's easier for me to kind of try to figure it out. But when it's someone who works for me, my natural inclination has been, you know what I did at your age? You know, you know what I would do if I were in your shoes? Like, I have no idea why you're not, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's not helpful either. Like, you got to figure out where they're coming from and figure out kind of what's in their head and heart, or else you're never going to reach alignment with somebody who works for you. And as soon as you figure out what they're working towards, and you can start going with the flow of the water and by the way, sometimes it's not going where you want it to go, and that's fine. That's a separation conversation, ultimately. But man, if you can align with someone and the best version of themselves and all of their courage and energy and passion and understand how they're going to channel it in a way that's going to help the company and help their profession and they can see it and you can see it, man, you unlock so much potential. 
I'm curious to know a little bit more. I'm going to take us back to the other tool that I heard you used, which is presence. Because what could have been the same person encountered the exact same situation and something totally different could have happened, where you said it felt like I was the duck and the top half of me was above the water, cool and calm, and then my feet were going a million miles an hour under the surface. And what I think is just as common, maybe more common than what you shared, is the person who has the same meeting with Tom, the room speeds up on them, they say whatever they say, but really their head is somewhere totally different. They leave the meeting, their brain slows down a little bit, then they can think about the questions that they wish they'd asked, or, hey, I wish I had explored this thing, or geez, I might be too late for that, I shoulda, coulda, woulda, and that didn't happen to you. And so I'm curious to know, how? How did that not happen to you and you had a different version of that story? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes more natural to me than some people. The perspective one, I think, is a learned thing. Like I'm naturally self-centered, maybe more than other people. So I've had to learn perspective over time. But presence of mind actually comes pretty naturally to me. I probably wouldn't be able to coach as well on that because I, lots of people that I love in my life would do the second thing that you just described because that's just like how they're wired. And I'm a little bit like, I don't know if it's lucky or not, because sometimes not showing emotion is a, uh, is a bad thing. <laughs> I think I got lucky. I don't know if you've ever read any Jonathan Haidt. He talks about winning the cortical lottery. He's like a psychologist. And some people are naturally born with optimism and the ability to take the same incoming stimuli. And one person would say, oh my gosh, once again, I'm lucky. Why does everything go my way? This is great. And a different person, same stimuli. Oh no, something good just happened. I better watch my back. What's going to happen next? When is the other shoe going to drop? I better not leave the apartment. <laughs> Same stimuli, two different people wired different ways. I got lucky. I'm wired the former way. So even when he was delivering me that bad news, it didn't, didn't knock me off balance. Luck for sure. Definitely the lottery. And so you shared these two situations, challenging situations, smooth sailing after that, or have there been other low points on your journey? Oh, so many. I'm drawn to putting myself in harm's way. It gives me energy, probably because I'm wired in a way that I don't turn it back on myself and beat myself up. But I have pushed myself to the edge a few times. And I remember one time uh, when we were running Fundly, that's the crowdfunding company I talked about in, out of Palo Alto. We got a seed investment from George Zachary, super famous guy, you know, invested in Twitter. Like that's how he made his name. Ended up at Charles River Ventures, super famous guy, seed funded and fundly. As soon as he did, everybody came in. We raised two million bucks, like no problem. And back then, two million bucks meant something. And so we hired and we, you know, and we're building and things are good. I'm learning about unit economics and I'm driving down El Camino Real. I get a call from George Zachary on my phone. I mean, this is like a big dude. <laughs> and uh, he's like, hey, this is going to be a tough conversation. Uh, are you in a place where you can talk? Oof. That's like the most anxiety-inducing question ever. Yes. I'm like, I better pull over. <laughs> so I pull the car over. I'm like, yeah, I can talk. And he said, look, we're not going to follow on. He had invested out of CRV's seed fund. It's like, we're not going to follow on. And he's like, and I know that everybody watches us and I know that everybody watches me. So I know that that's going to be really tough for you. It's going to be a market signal. That's going to be, and I don't know how you're going to get through it. He's like, I don't know how, but you'll figure it out. And your toughest enemy will be in the mirror. So don't let yourself get down. 
you'll figure it out. Anything else I can do? I'm like, uh, no, thank you. Bye. And um, I did 40 pitches on that business to raise our Series A. That means 39 no's. That means like 39 times getting out of my car, walking into a venture office. This is when we did it in person. (laughs) I usually went solo, gearing up my courage. I'd sit in my car and rehearse what was in the slides, what was in the pitch, what energy I needed to bring into the meeting. And then I'd walk into the meeting, I'd do the pitch, they'd be all excited. And then X days later, I'd get a no. When you take that like 10 times, it can be discouraging. Zero out of 20, really discouraging. Zero out of 25, really discouraging. I was like zero or 39. And I had moved my family, six kids from Boston to Silicon Valley. We had basically self-funded for a year. Very expensive place to live. College funds are gone for my kids. We've invested them. We rented instead of owned. Like we sold our dream house in Boston and we lived in a rental in Los Altos. And I'm on like pitch 30, 31, 32. This may not work. I cried a lot. I had hired people. I had moved people. Everyone was betting on this. It was a small company, eight or 10 people at that point. But there were eight or 10 people I loved and I worked with every single day. And of course, I love my family and, you know, they had all uprooted and moved. There have been some tough moments. We, now that 40th one worked, right? And we got a $5 million round and we were off to the races. But uh, you don't necessarily know that after 35 failures. I, I want to go back to the beginning, but let me ask a quick question about this last piece since it's timely here. How'd you have the courage to keep going after you try something 35 times and it doesn't work? I've heard all kinds of stories from famous folks that say, they attribute a lot of their success to their willingness to just keep going and to keep having at-bats and to stick with whatever their thing is in life. Where does that motivation come from for you? I'm going to get emotional here. My wife was really helpful to me. She'd see me down and she'd say, you know, what's wrong? And I'd tell her and she'd say, well, Dave, does this service need to exist in the world? And I said, yeah, it does. And she's like, is there any reason you wouldn't be able to build it, you and the team? Like, no, we're out in front. We're doing it. She's like, okay. So if it needs to exist and you can do it, why not keep trying until you're convinced that it's not going to happen? And she's like, we'll be fine. There's a movie uh, called The Swiss Family Robinson, where a family from Switzerland ends up on a deserted island and they have to like build their treehouse and they build their running water system and they plant a garden and they figure out how to basically survive. My kids love that movie. At one point, they're all like cheering for dad to raise money on this company. At one point, they said, well, if it fails, then that's fine. We'll just move out of our house and we'll go build a treehouse like Swiss Family Robinson and we'll just live there for a while. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. (laughs) We could figure it out. We're built to sustain failure in the United States. And with some resilience and courage, we can go do something else. And so Lisa just really helped coach me through it. In the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things, I think he states, what's the worst that can happen? And you play that out. And then what would I do in that situation? And you play that out. So Lisa kind of helped me do that without it being that succinct. Love that. And then going back to the initial call from from George. So you're driving, you get the call when you're in the car. Mm -hmm. And did you like the way that he introed the tough feedback? The way he said, hey, this is going to be a tough call. Do you have a second? In fact, I've used it ever since. That's so interesting. Did you ever listen to Lenny's podcast? Yeah. He did this one with Matt Mashari. So I, I hadn't heard of Matt before. 
Matt is, uh, for context, he's an executive coach for Silicon Valley CEO. So with our people, essentially, uh, and some of the more prominent, high-profile ones. And he says, whenever you had, this is like something, for whatever reason, it sticks out in my mind. I can almost see the clip as I'm sharing it with you. But he said something like that, which is when you have tough conversations, whether it's a separation conversation or a feedback conversation or funding, whatever it might be, to always start by giving someone a heads up that it's going to be a tough conversation. And that just allows them to almost get into the right headspace. And so yeah, that's why I was curious to go back to this, to get your reactions on it. Yeah, it struck me. I mean, I haven't heard it as an explicit advice, but because George used it with me and I, and it helped me, I've been using it ever since, especially in a separation conversation. It's not going to be helpful for me to say, hey, how's your day going? Like, that's all fake. Let's shut the door. This is going to be a tough conversation. And then everyone's like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> right, right. But you almost get it out of your system versus it unfolding and you trying to get it out of your system in the moment, but probably feeling a little overwhelmed. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, so someone with your background and experience might be looked at as success. Someone might look at someone with your pedigree and think that person's got it all figured out. Do you struggle with self-doubt? Oh, yeah. But, you know, I said earlier, I like to put myself in harm's way. I think it's part of a growth mindset. I don't think declaring victory is very interesting. <laughs> I don't think retirement is very interesting. It just sounds horrible. Like, okay, I'm done. Like, I don't ever want to be done. And I'm not saying that I have to be engaged in wealth creation, that, but I need to be engaged in value creation. Bringing things of value into the world, I think is, to me, it's a, you know, a reason for living. <laughs> when inside sales was a crash landing, which it was, definitely did not live up to our privilege on inside sales. We sold it for way less than its valuation. I took eight months of introspection through all that introspection. I decided I'm going to go all in on product-led growth. I'm going to learn what I missed while I've been out of the game or relearn it. I'm going to state to the world that I'm going to become an expert in this. Even though I'd run a company before that did product-led growth, since I'd been out of it for a while, I wasn't that confident. There were lots of people who were better at it than I was. I started getting to know them. I started reaching out to them. I started reading everything I could get my hands on. I started working with CEOs. I even started consulting for fees. And I just said, look, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I'm probably as good as anybody, at least in some circles, and we'll just make this work. Was I insecure about it? For sure. hundred percent. Every time I ran into someone who hadn't taken the break I had taken and had like pursued multiple gigs in the meantime that I thought was better than me, I'm like, oh boy, should I give up? No, don't give up. I called BYU where I teach in the business school, teach MBAs. And I said, hey, can I teach you a class on product-led growth? We'll switch it from B2B sales and marketing to product-led growth. They said, what's that? <laughs> I told them, they said, oh yeah, okay, that sounds good. That ended up being the first in the world MBA level class on product-led growth. Okay, cool. So now how do I teach it? I'll just go into the Harvard case library and find the cases on product-led growth, right? Wrong. Like I went into the case, couldn't find a single thing, like a single case. I called my friend, Mark Robert. He teaches at HBS. said, is it true? There are no cases on product-led growth. He's like, yeah, you can grab the Dropbox case and repurpose it. And that's the only one I know of. I'm like, are you kidding me? So then I just had to make stuff up and people were really gracious. I'm like, I'm teaching a class. Can I pick your brain? Would you be a guest? I'm pulling these things together. Could we do a case study? And a lot of people were really gracious. They started meeting me because I had put myself out way over my skis and people knew I was being vulnerable. 
And then I'd reach out to like Leah, who introduced us, or to Jesus for Kenya, who's at Hex now and was at Figma before. And he's like, here, let me show you how I did it. Let me be a guest on your class. Leah allowed me to use her guide in my class. So now I'm like, I'm doing that. I also start writing a book. Why should I be the person to write a book? I don't know. There were a couple of books out there, but not much. And Mark Roberge was really, really encouraging. He's like, you've been in the boardroom. You've been on the East Coast, not just Silicon Valley. You know the language of business leaders, capital L. So if there's anyone that could, that would have the patience to understand it and then the ability to communicate it to business power brokers, it would be you. I'm like, okay, well, let me try. I'll probably do this again too, Andrew. Like, you know, I'll probably put myself in harm's way again and then try to figure it out. But what is a really, really existential feeling to be like, I do not know this space. I do not know what I'm doing. And yet I'm going to declare it and see what I can do. Love that. I was curious to ask you, there's a ton of folks out there who are probably listening to this, having a different flavor of this dream, right? Maybe they just want to start creating content online or maybe being on podcasts or something like this. And they're telling a story in their head, which is, I'm not the right person, or there's so many other people that could do this. What would be your advice to someone who is thinking those things? So similar is what was going through my head with Fundly, right? When Lisa had to talk me off a ledge. If not, you who? And if not now, when? You know, the, the MBA students that I work with all have a version of this. They all have a version of this. They stepped out of a career to take two years off to invest in themselves, and they are all nervous that it's not going to pay off, like all of them. They're nervous about where their career is going to take them from there. They see this person go do this amazing thing and that person go do that amazing thing. And then they're like, that's not me. I'll never be able to do that. And I just tell them, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family. You owe it to everyone who knows you to not be the person sitting in the cubicle, not taking chances. You owe it to yourself to be the person. You got to go be Henry V or Rudy or the rookie, like you need to be the person who sticks, puts themselves out there and tries. Otherwise, you'll never, ever know. And what's the worst that could happen? You have to take a real job? That's the worst that could happen, especially for these MBAs. Like you have an MBA, you're going to be fine. So for people who are listening, who are just thinking about it, if not you, who? And if not now, when? There's something that you were put on the planet to do. There's something that you are very extremely good at. And if you're really honest with yourself, you'll be able to admit, I'm actually really good at this thing. Okay, cool. So how can I leverage that thing? It doesn't necessarily have to be what's expected of you. Like it doesn't have to be product-led growth. All the cool kids are doing product-led growth. I got to do product-led growth. No, not necessarily. What are you really good at? Like, What are you really, really good at? If you're really, really good at visual design, do visual design. If you're really, really good at sales, do sales. If you're really, really good at motivation, do motivation. If you're really, really good at metrics and numbers, product-led growth might be a really good place for you to be. But whatever you're really good at, it comes back to that clay principle. Get the water flowing downhill. Get the laws of physics working for you. Do the stuff that you're great at that's going to add value and that's going to give you energy. And if you found that and all you need is a little bit of courage, here's me sending you courage. Yeah, I love if that. you know what you're good at and you know what adds value, then just do it. We've talked about courage a bunch of times in our convo. And I'm curious... What role does courage play for you today? You've probably mentioned it five times in our conversation. So I know it's got to be something that's pretty core to who you are and how you operate. Yeah, it is. Might even write a book on it. Hmm. 
courage and energy are two things that I'm really, really playing with. Like there's an economy of energy that we all participate in. We give energy, we get energy. And it's the things that we do to create value, give us energy back. That's like the luckiest thing you could possibly have because it's a perpetual energy machine. You're doing stuff to create value and then you're getting energy back. Amazing. If you could do that every day, the rest of your life, how happy would you be? But sometimes it takes some courage to say no to the thing that you understand and say yes to the future that you only have thought about in your head that may or may not be reality. It's way easier to say yes to the present than it is to say yes to the future. A big difference is courage. If I can build an emotional relationship with my version of the future and an energetic relationship with my version of the future, and then I can just exercise a little bit of courage to take some steps towards it, stuff's going to start happening. Like water's going to start flowing downhill. But you do have to have that courage. Like coming out of business school, if you had a pulse and you had an MBA from Harvard, which is where I went, you could take a job on Wall Street for a guaranteed $700,000 over two years. Guaranteed. That's in the year 2000. Still sounds good today. $700,000 in two years, like amazing. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. It didn't sound fun to me. I'd have to work in investment banking, which doesn't give me energy. So maybe say no to something like that so that you can say yes to something that will give you energy, that you are good at, that you are uniquely positioned to add value in, which for me was startups. And again, you're sending courage to anyone who's thinking about a decision like that. If you could go back in time, what is one skill that you wish you had developed that would have helped your career? I'm an honest guy, but not always with myself. So like these things that we're talking about right now, what are you actually good at? What should you actually be doing? Can you give yourself permission to be good at the thing that you're really good at? Can you be honest about what you maybe are less good at? Can you be honest about this idea that you're taking that job for the paycheck instead of for the actual substance of the value you're going to create? Can I be honest about that? I would like to give that speech to my younger self and not just not waste time in doing things that are for the wrong reasons, for the money, for the title, for the prestige, do it for the right reasons, for value creation, for energy generation, for relationship development. Goes back to that courage, the courage to say no to the wrong things. You only can have that courage if you know what those are and you know what they aren't. Yeah. And then just be honest, allow yourself to see it and name it, speak to it, own it. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing some of your, your wisdom and your speed bumps and your bruises here. For folks who are following this that want more, where can they go to interact and get more from you? Oh, I would love to see you on my Substack, which is productledgtm.com. We'll link to it in the show notes. Or on LinkedIn. Love to see you on LinkedIn. The topics on LinkedIn are half about courage and energy and career and life design and half about product-led GTM. On Substack, it's pretty much all product-led GTM. I'd love to see you out there. I'd love your thoughts and feelings. I'd love to follow your story. I'm just a big fan of humans and what humans can do. So if I can learn from you, I'd love to. Dave, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Amazing. Go Sox. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. 
And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.